0: You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. If uh, if you are unaware, um, well, first of all, my name is Lucas. I'm the other pastor here, and um, and we've been uh, we've been going through. This is a two part series, uh, and so this is part two uh, of what we're uh, kind of our new mission statement. So. Uh, as Ovi mentioned last week, uh, our old mission statement um, there was there was kind of an expanded mission statement, but we kind of shortened it to always just say uh, just say something to the effect of um, "live for more." Um, and though that really kind of fit what it was, the expanded um, mission statement, we felt like that was maybe missing the mark, uh, and it wasn't communicating enough of who we are as a church, um, or or giving us more of a. It wasn't giving us enough of a call uh, to, uh, to action. So uh, as we kind of prayed, uh, the elders, we, we prayed about this and, and kind of uh, found a mission statement that kind of more accurately represents what, we, uh, what we're here for and what we're trying to do. So uh, our new mission statement is, uh, is pursuing the high calling, uh, and that kind of harkens back to our name, right? Summit, the apex, we're pursuing this high call um, of uh, knowing Christ, and, uh, and proclaiming his kingdom. So last week, uh, we spent quite a bit of time talking about, um, about knowing Christ. Uh, I just realized I didn't set my timer. So it would be for all of our benefit if that was running. Okay. There we go. So, uh, pursuing the high calling of knowing Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. Uh, is this, uh, is this goal of, of knowing Christ. Um, and, uh, and this is really kind of what makes us us, right? Uh, this is our identity. This is who we are. And we seek as a church to know Christ, uh, know Christ more fully. Um, and as Paul puts it, uh, knowing Christ and him crucified. Um, whereas at least in Paul's mind, uh, it's the crucifixion and resurrection. That's the linchpin of all of Christianity. That's the thing that holds this whole thing together. Uh, if Christ didn't die and if he didn't raise from the dead, we should be pitied more than all other men. So uh, this is our goal, is we seek to know Christ uh, as a community, as a church. Uh, this is why we exist. Uh, however, uh, it doesn't stop there. Uh, what we don't want our church to do is just kind of like sit in Bible studies and just like kind of consume the word and just learn and learn and learn. Uh, I would, had a professor in college, he, would, uh, he called that uh, theological obesity, Uh, where you're just constantly consuming and consuming and consuming, right? Uh, You search the scriptures, you know your biblical theology, uh, you understand who God is, uh, you know how to exegete the text well, and you just consume and consume, but you never expend those calories. You never do anything with what you have now learned about Christ. So we do not, as a church, we do not want to be a church full of uh, theological obese um, Christians, Instead, we do something with what we, have, what we now know about Christ. So this brings us to the second part of our mission statement. So uh, we seek to know Christ, but we also seek to proclaim his kingdom. And this is where we spend our calories, right? This is where uh, we actually do the work that's been given to us. Um, and uh, and so there's obvious uh, uh, evangelical overtones in this part uh, of the um, uh, of the mission statement. Obviously, we should be going out. We should be declaring the gospel. We should be proclaiming the gospel to uh, to an unsaved world. Um, but uh, but we worded it in such a way uh, that we there's there's a lot of theological depth to this component. Uh, it's not just ev- uh, just evangelizing uh, or sharing the gospel, though it is. There's a lot. There's a lot more to this second part of proclaiming his kingdom specifically, not just the gospel, because the gospel is a critical component to his kingdom, but proclaiming his kingdom specifically. So um, as I like to do, I give my disclaimers all up front. Uh, Here at Summit, we like to just pick a chunk of text and go through verse by verse in a text uh, and really kind of like build that out. Very rarely do we do these topical messages where we just pick a topic and then we go through the Bible uh, and find verses that kind of uh, argue for the point. Uh, However, that is what I'm doing today. So my disclaimer, we are going through a lot of different verses uh, and we're not going to be spending a ton of time on any one of them. So uh, that's my disclaimer to you. Uh, We are going to be going and bouncing around quite a bit, uh, namely because kingdom theology is a massive topic. Uh, it's, it's just absolutely massive. And it's not even just something that you find in the Old Testament or New Testament. You could just kind of hang out in one of the Testaments. It's this string that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And, uh, and you could, we could spend a whole year just going through kingdom theology and just picking at different verses. Um, most of the time uh, would actually just be going through Jesus's parables. Uh, if you're wondering what Jesus talked about most, he talked about the kingdom uh, in his parables, probably more than anything else. So um, so there's, uh, there's kind of two major ideas or two questions uh, that we're going to seek to address today. Uh, the first question is we're going to try to uh, figure out what is the kingdom. Uh, we're not gonna be able to understand how to proclaim the kingdom if we don't even know what the kingdom is, right? So we're gonna be talking about what is the kingdom and then the second question is, okay, then once we get our fingers around what is the kingdom, then we're gonna talk about how do we actually proclaim uh, his kingdom, so uh, before we get into our first text, I'd like for us to pray and, uh, and just orient our hearts uh, toward our Lord and our savior. Dear God, I just, uh, I just thank you for uh, today and, uh, and just thank you for your word. And I, I thank you for, um, for making your intentions clear to us on what you're accomplishing and, and what you're doing uh, in this world. I um, also just want to thank you for, uh, for being patient with us and making it clear, uh, abundantly clear uh, what, your, uh, what your intentions are for us to, uh, to actually execute and do what our role is in this broken world um, and, uh, and what you're doing in our hearts. I thank you for this church. And, uh, and I just ask that you just, you move in your church and you speak to your church today uh, through your word. And, um, and again, just orient our hearts to you and, um, and just illuminate our lives with, uh, with what you have for us. And we love you. Thank you again. Amen. So. It would be advantageous for us to understand uh, if we're gonna talk about what is the kingdom, uh, we need to understand what the Old Testament perspective of the kingdom is. Now, like I said, this, uh, this could be this whole study, just Old Testament kingdom theology. Um, but I'll kind of give a brief overview. Um, we're gonna start in Daniel seven, just because I feel like Daniel seven captures uh, some of the heart of kingdom theology, at least in the Old Testament. Um, so we're going to look through Daniel 7, but a little bit of context, uh, Daniel, uh, he's actually in Babylon at this point. So uh, the Jewish history has already kind of unfolded to the point where David was already king, uh, a covenant was given to David, uh, and what that covenant was is that it's through the line of David uh, that a kingdom would be, uh, would be built through the line of David, and it would be everlasting, and it would never die, um, and it would be God's kingdom, and then uh, not, uh, not too much time passed and then uh, the nation of Israel was dispersed and now Israel's in Babylon. They're no longer a nation. They're no longer a people group uh, and they're no longer even located in the same spaces anymore. And you can see the desperation of the Jewish people at this point where are just like, what happened to the kingdom? What, what happened? There was, a, there was a covenant with David, it, he, an everlasting kingdom that would never be destroyed. What, what happened? And the people are now dispersed and there's, there's just no hope of it ever coming back. And it really begs the question, did God forget his people? Did he forget his promise? And Daniel comes into the picture and says, absolutely not. So Daniel 7, uh, verse 13 through 14, Daniel receives this vision. Daniel 13 says, I kept looking into the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here, Daniel is received this, uh, He's received this vision and this is comfort to a dispersed Jewish people. The kingdom is coming, right? And there's this son of man that's coming. And and we know already from the covenant of David, he has to be of the line of David. So the son of man is coming. He's going to establish his kingdom and it's going to be, his dominion is going to be everlasting. It will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. And what does this dominion cover? It's all nations, all peoples, all populations and all languages. And so it's no wonder why the Jewish people, they, they read this and they understood this. They understood the kingdom, was going to be this one world kind of Jewish government where this son of man would come, he would conquer the nations and everyone would be subjected underneath Yahweh's kingdom. And this perspective is massively helpful when we understand because then when Jesus shows up on the scenes, everyone misunderstands him. No one knows what's going on because everyone is just massively confused about this son of man. We even see the disciples, they, they just don't get it uh, to the point where Jesus is telling his disciples, no, no, no guys, I have to go to Jerusalem to be handed over to the Jews and be crucified. And Peter pulls him aside and he's like, you gotta stop with this death conversation. It's turning people off. The son of man doesn't die, he conquers the world. And that's when Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So you see this disconnect where no, 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 the son of man can't suffer, he can't die, he conquers. He starts the kingdom. He kicks this whole thing off. You even see this uh, kind of in the intentions of the disciples. Uh, this rabbi comes up claiming to be the son of man. and He says, leave your fisher nets and come follow me. Of course you're going to. It's the king, right? You're getting in at the ground floor. Why wouldn't you join him? And, and you, again, you see this with, uh, with the sons of thunder, right? Uh, their mom, mom comes along and says, hey, when you establish your kingdom, uh, can my sons sit at your left and your right-hand side, right? Again, they're looking for power. They think he's gonna overthrow Rome. It's, fi- it's finally time that Rome is gonna get theirs. We're gonna get Rome off our back and we're gonna start this kingdom, this one world government. And again, Jesus is just flipping this all on its head. Even see on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in on a donkey and everyone's shouting, Hosanna. Why? Because they think it's, it's happening, right? This thing's gonna kick off. And then just a few days later, they're shouting for his crucifixion. Why? Because he didn't follow through. He didn't do what they thought that he was going to do. And in reality, he was more of a savior and more of a Messiah than they ever thought he would have been. And we see this very clearly in John 18. John 18. John 18 is, uh, is now, Jesus has now been uh, captured by the Jews. Uh, he's been handed over to Pilate um, and uh, he's now charged uh, to be crucified. Uh, the, Pilate's trying to get out of it at this point. Um, he's tried a couple different times. And, uh, and that's when the Jewish people said, no, no, he claimed to be a king. So Pilate, John 18, it says, therefore Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own or did others tell you about me? And Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, are you a king? So are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly, I'm a king. And for this purpose, I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This whole conversation is just so thick with irony. Uh, Jesus claims he is a king. Uh, and he said, but if my kingdom was of this world, I wouldn't have been handed over to the Jews. But he, just, he was supposed to be a king of the Jews, right? So if his kingdom was of the world, he wouldn't have been handed over to the Jews, uh, which is supposedly his, uh, his kingdom. But Jesus is making this very clear to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. This is an immaterial kingdom, And so Jesus is, yes, admitting, I do have a kingdom. I am a king, but my dominion, my kingdom is not of this world. And this is what confounded the Jewish people and even Pilate here. This didn't make sense because up until this point in history, all kingdoms were a king conquering other people. This is how kingdoms work, right? So what's the point of a kingdom that isn't conquered? What's the point of a kingdom that isn't material? And Jesus makes it very clear that as a king, as the ruler of this kingdom, his job is to testify to the truth. That's his job. That's his kingdom. And so you see how this this flips this flips the kingdom theology on its head where the Jewish people, they were waiting, they were desperately waiting for Rome to be off their back. And Jesus offers them a kingdom that they didn't want, but they did need. And so we do know from Daniel that this kingdom, what this kingdom looks like, it is an everlasting dominion. It's a dominion that doesn't pass away. It's not destroyed. And the people that are subjected to this dominion are people of all nations, peoples, uh, and uh, populations of all languages. So that's true. That is the case. But Jesus here says, but it's not material. But I don't conquer anybody. And so this is where Jesus starts shaping or he's been shaping up until this point. But here we see very clearly that Jesus's kingdom is not one that's coerced or conquered, but it's a kingdom made up of people that come to Christ, subject themselves to Christ. we see that very clearly in Luke 19. Luke 19, like I said, we're jumping around and uh, I'm going to give context for each of these because I really hate verses out of context. (laughs) So verse 19, uh, Jesus is hanging out with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. If you don't know uh, how the Jewish people viewed, uh, viewed tax collectors, they viewed them as worse than Gentiles, right? These were Jewish people that were in the covenant of Abraham and they sold their covenant. They sold their birthright so that they could cheat other Jews, right? Think prodigal son. Someone that was in the house of the father and then left, squandered his wealth and now is less than the pigs, right? This is a tax collector. So Zacchaeus comes along, Jesus is hanging out with Zacchaeus and now there's this big ruckus. Why would the son of man be spending time with this tax collector? He's here for the Jews, not even the Gentiles. Why is he spending time with the worse people that are worse than Gentiles? So there's this big ruckus there's these uh, criticisms being uh, flown at Jesus and then Luke nineteen eight through 10, it says, but Zacchaeus stopped. So Zacchaeus stops the conversation. He interrupts the conversation and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm giving to the poor. And if I have exhorted any or extorted anything from anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And again, the Jews would have said, no, he's not. He sold his birthright. He's not a part of the covenant. He's not a son of Abraham. Jesus says, no, he too is a son of Abraham. And then verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here, what we see is another role of the king. The king came to testify to the truth and he came to seek the lost. And again, we see this idea of what is this kingdom? Well, it's immaterial and it's not conquered. He doesn't conquer the people. What does he do? Who's he ruling over? It's people that come to him, seeking salvation from him. Now, what's very interesting about this and you can actually see this playing out is from the Jewish perspective, they thought that when the son of man would come, he puts an end to the current age and he starts the age to come. The son of man comes and the current age ends and the age to come begins. And the way I teach this to my high schoolers is imagine that the, uh, the current age is in blue and then the age to come is in red. And the Jews thought that the, the demarcation line was the son of God. Right, was the Son of Man. And the Jews had it right that when the Son of Man comes, he brings the age to come. That's very true. However, what they got wrong is that he does not end the current age. If the current age is blue and the age to come is red, we're living in the purple. We're kind of living in this in between where Christ has come, he's brought his kingdom. The kingdom is here, it's now. The king is here. And he's come to testify to the truth and to seek that which is lost. But he hasn't ended the current age. And again, we see this in, I put up three passages here, is that there was this very interesting dynamic within at least uh, New Testament kingdom theology is this idea of if anyone has ever heard now and not yet. That is very much what's at play here. When we talk about kingdom, we have to have this idea in mind. Matthew 4, when Jesus just started his ministry, Matthew 4 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, it's now, it's real. But then in Matthew 6, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we just prayed through this, Jesus tells his disciples, pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus wants his disciples to ask that the kingdom should come. But Jesus, I thought you said that it's here. So which is it? You see this now and not yet dynamic. It's here and yet it's coming, right? The current age is here and yet, or the age to come is here and yet the current age hasn't ended. We're in this tension. We're in the purple, right? And even in Acts 28, uh, this passage is, uh, is Paul had just uh, finished all his missionary journeys. He's now in house arrest in Rome, waiting for trial under Caesar. And uh, the book of Acts ends in this way. Um, And uh, and it says that Paul in verse 31 uh, was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Which by the way, is our mission statement, by the way, if anyone caught that. So what was Paul doing? He was proclaiming the kingdom, right? And what was the kingdom? It was things about the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus This is quite literally what our hope is for this church is that as a collective group, we know Christ and we proclaim his kingdom just like Paul did in Rome and what we seek to do to the ends of the earth. But here, even Paul is preaching the kingdom of God. So in Paul's mind, the kingdom is here, it's now. So when Jesus told his disciples that yes, you should pray that the kingdom comes, that's true, but that doesn't mean that we just ignore the fact that it's here. So often Christians, we just twiddle our thumbs because we're just waiting for the end. We're waiting for the kingdom to come. We're waiting for this all to be realized and consummated. But the Christian idea is no, 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 the kingdom's here. It's now, it's in your midst, it's at hand. And if that's the case, and we all have work to do. We all live in eternity now. And if anyone was here two weeks ago when I talked about hell, uh, this does kind of dovetail into that, where I kind of ended this whole conversation on hell where it's, hell is kind of, it's, it's our sin uh, unhindered. And what hell is, is just God just remove it's just, it, you, what hell is, is just all of your sin and anguish and self-serving is just let to ride out in, uh, in all unhindered fashion. So in a very real way, hell is here now, but the opposite is also true. The kingdom is here. Heaven is here. Heaven has broken through in Christ and the kingdom is now. And we see this tension even more clearly in Luke 17. It's gonna be the largest passage that we go through and do want to spend a little bit more time talking about this. Luke 17 starts in verse 20. Jesus was just doing a whole bunch of miracles. uh, And then in verse 20, it says, now he was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midsts. So here, Jesus is, uh, (laughs) you you can almost sense the frustration in Jesus's Jesus's words, right? Well, what's the sign that the kingdom's coming, right? When is it coming? And he's like, a sign? You already missed it, it's here. There's no sign. The kingdom is standing right in front of you. The king is here. There's nothing left to look for. There's no sign left for you to observe. There's no warning left, the king is already here. Therefore the kingdom is here. And there's, a, it's so thick with irony because of the Pharisees are just totally unaware of the fact that they're actually talking to the kingdom manifest. And they're asking, what are the signs? How will we know? And Jesus is saying, there's no sign. It's already here. You missed all the signs. And so he tells the Pharisees this, that the kingdom is in their midst. Another way of translating, you might find this in your Bible. It says it it is among you. It's this idea that it's, it's under your nose. It's right here. But then in verse 22, he says, and he said to his disciples, so he stopped talking to the Pharisees, turned to the disciples and he tells them this. The days will come when you long to see one of the days of the son of men and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not leave and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes from one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the son of man be. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will also be in the days of the son of men. So let's pause there and just talk about what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the day of the Lord. If you know anything about the Old Testament day of the Lord, this is, when, uh, this is when everything kind of comes to an end. The wicked are judged and the righteous are rewarded with eternal life. The day of the Lord is, is what kind of con- uh, consummates everything uh, that the Jewish people were actually waiting for. They actually almost expected Jesus to be this, right? The son of man, when he conquered Rome, this would be it. This is when Rome gets theirs. This is when the Jewish people set up their one world Jewish government and the kingdom of God comes and reigns over all earth. And what Jesus is telling specifically his disciples, not the Pharisees, the disciples, what he's telling them is that when someone tells you or you will, there will come a day when you long for these days, when you see the son of man, but you will not be able to see it. And people will come to you and they will say, look, the son of man's over here. It's coming. The kingdom's coming. Oh, it's over here. And Jesus is saying, don't don't listen to that. Don't fall for that. The coming of the son of man will be like lightning that flashes from one end of the sky to the other. And if you've ever seen that, it lights up the night, doesn't it? You don't miss it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't be fooled. If someone tells you that the son of man has come and you missed it, don't be fooled. You're not missing this one. All the Jews missed the first one. No one's missing the second one. This, by the way, is what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Jesus came back secretly and now he secretly rules and reigns through the Jehovah's Witness church. And it is a bit of irony that this passage is in their Bible. They forgot to take this one out. But this is exactly what they teach is that Jesus came secretly and rules and reigns secretly. And Jesus is saying, there's no secret about my second coming. You may have missed the first signs and the first one, but you're not missing the second one. What Jesus is getting at here is that there is coming a time when the kingdom will come. Do we all see the tension here? He just told the Pharisees, there's no sign. The kingdom's here. It's now. It's under your nose. It's among you. Then he turns to the disciples and he says, but it's still coming, right? But who's it coming for? The disciples, not the Pharisees. That's why his attention turned. Do we see this? And so as disciples of God, we live in this tension. We live in the purple. We live in the now and not yet. Is the kingdom here? Yes. Is it coming? Yes. And Jesus goes on to say uh, that when he comes back, it is like the days of Noah. Verse 27, people were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, it was the same as, uh, as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like the same on the day of the son of man is revealed. On that day, the one will be on uh, his housetop with his goods in his house. He must not go in and take them out. And likewise, the one in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever, strives to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. And two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And responding, they, the disciples said to him, where Lord? And he said to them where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, what's interesting about this is, uh, is a lot of people read this passage and they talk about this is the rapture, right? Uh, is that two people will be going and then suddenly one will be taken. Um, the rapture is very real and it is a very real theological concept. Um, you cannot divorce the rapture um, from the words of, uh, of Paul um, and, uh, and from Christ in other instances. However, here, what's being indicated is that the people that are taken are being taken for judgment, not for redemption. And we see that here in the last where they ask him where Lord, and they're asking where were they taken? They're not asking where the other people were because they know where they were. Where was the person that was in the bed that was left? Well, they're in bed, right? What about the person grinding? Well, they were left grinding and the person in the field, where were they left in the field? So they're asking where, Lord, where were the other people taken? And Jesus says, they were taken. Um, and he says, where the body is there, the vultures will be gathered. This is their doom. This is their destruction. And so this is this idea of where the kingdom is now, it's here, but when the kingdom, it comes in all of its manifestation and in its glory, when it's consummated, it comes with the destruction of the wicked. And he's going back to the day of the Lord. This is the kingdom that will come. And so understanding all of this, we get a full picture of this kingdom theology idea. So what is the kingdom? Well, going back to Daniel, it's, uh, it's an everlasting kingdom. It doesn't pass away, it can't be destroyed. Uh, it's a kingdom whose dominion is over all people, nations, populations, all languages. We know uh, from Jesus' mouth when he's talking to Pilate, it's immaterial. It's not something that's conquered or coerced. He's not conquering anyone. Instead, people are coming to him, subjecting themselves to him. And what does this look like? It looks like uh, lost souls coming to Christ. This is what this looks like, is the kingdom is actually, it's in us. It's in every single person that calls Jesus Christ Lord and repents. And we also know that it's this here and not yet the kingdom of God is very much here. It's alive. It's active. It's in front of us. It's under our nose. It's in our midst. And yet it is still coming on the day of the Lord. So all of this is, is massively helpful when we understand. So now that we get our fingers around, what is the kingdom? Now we can ask ourselves. So then how do we proclaim this kingdom? What's going on here? How do we actually proclaim something that isn't material? How do we go around telling people about a kingdom that can't be observed or seen? So we move on to this next question of how do we proclaim the kingdom or his kingdom? And again, this is our whole mission statement. This is what we're getting at, is how do we do this? I actually want us to go back to Genesis one. So Genesis one, verse 26 through 27. Genesis one, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and every uh, crawling thing that crawls on the earth. And so God created in his own image, man in his own image, in the image he created him, male and female, he created them. And what does this have to do with kingdom? Uh, What's interesting about this is in ancient civilizations, what would happen is you didn't have your GPS, right? It didn't tell you, hey, you've crossed into Ohio, right? Uh, So as you're going traveling in the ancient world, how do you know what dominion you're actually in? And so as you you cross into a new dominion, uh, what do you see but a image of the king? You see a likeness of the king. You see how this would have read to an ancient Israel when Adam was created in the image of God, Adam was a image of the king. And wherever Adam went, so did the dominion of God. So did the kingdom. We all see this. And so what was Adam and Eve? What were they told to do? Uh, That was be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, right? Extend the kingdom spread the kingdom over the whole earth, wherever mankind goes, so does the kingdom of God. And we see this actually played out where, were we successful in doing this? Absolutely not. Instead, what we've spread is our own sin. Instead, what Adam did is he broke creation instead of extending God's kingdom. We even see this played out. And Paul even explains this in Romans eight. Uh, If you just think I'm making this up, uh, Paul is, uh, he explains this. Romans eight, this is a theological concept known as headship. So Romans eight, it says, for the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So let's stop there real quick what we need to recognize is that all of creation was subjected to Adam. And so when Adam broke, creation broke. We all see this. And it was Adam's job to extend God's kingdom throughout all the earth. And yet in verse 21, it says, in hope that creation itself, it's uh, itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope that we have been saved, but hope is not, uh, is, uh, I'm sorry, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is already for what he already sees but if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance we wait eagerly for it what's being communicated here is that when adam broke creation broke adam had a job to extend god's kingdom throughout all the earth and he failed And so now creation groans for the redemption of men. Why? Because when Adam broke, creation broke, but when men are redeemed, what happens to creation? It's made new. Creation groans for our redemption because we precede it in redemption. What's important about this is how do we then proclaim his kingdom? We do this naturally. It's that when Christ lives in us, when he rules and reigns in us, when Christ is our savior and he is our king, wherever we go, God's dominion goes with us. How do we proclaim his kingdom? We do this every time we go to work. We do this every time we have a conversation with somebody. We do this every time we walk around the block, we proclaim his kingdom and where we go, his kingdom goes just like Adam. It's almost as if the image of God that's built in us is actually used to the, way, uh, to the extent that God fully intended in Adam. It's almost as if our salvation actually uh, it actually extends our Im- the image of God in us. It perfects what God wanted Adam to do. And so what does this do? How do we proclaim his kingdom? We do this in everywhere we go and in all of our conversations. We proclaim his kingdom, not just to an unsaved world. We proclaim his kingdom in our actions, not just in our words. We do this in our conversations with our coworkers. We proclaim his kingdom when we, uh, when we explain to our kids how they're disobeying and God wants their souls to be saved. We proclaim his kingdom, not just outside the church, but in the church. As we have conversations with each other, as we edify the saints, as we worship God together, we proclaim his kingdom. And again, what we've talked about is the kingdom is not earthly, it's not, man, it's not observable. It's not the nation of Israel like the Jews thought. And is it the church? If you're Catholic, it is, right? but is is the church the kingdom of God? No, the kingdom of God is in you, but where do you see the kingdom most frequently and most clearly? You see it in the church. And so it is here that the kingdom should be most obvious to an outside world. It's in this church that that the, the, the kingdom should be most obvious. And this is our hope for this church. This is why it's in our mission statement is we desperately want to know Christ, but we want to proclaim his kingdom always. It's not just an evangelism thing. It's not just sharing the gospel. It's proclaiming the kingdom here. It's proclaiming the kingdom to our kids. It's proclaiming the kingdom to our spouses, to our coworkers. It's proclaiming the kingdom when we get our groceries. And it's not just in our words, but it's also in our deeds. We proclaim the kingdom when we love our neighbors as ourselves. We proclaim the kingdom when we pray to God and we beg him to save lost souls. We proclaim the kingdom. And lastly, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul, I feel like he really demonstrates this uh, in a very, uh, very real way. Paul is talking to Timothy. He's warning Timothy, had just warned Timothy about all the false prophets that were coming. And he warns them that there's, he has this whole list of just awful people to, uh, to watch out for. And then uh, in First Timothy, I think we all read that list. I didn't put it up here, but we all read that list in First Timothy and we're just like, wow, those are the worst people. And then Paul says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And with the faith and love, which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason, I have found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul here is making it very clear to Timothy, all those people that I just listed all the worst people that we can imagine, Paul says, I was worse and Christ saved me. How do we proclaim the kingdom to an unsaved world? We have this attitude. We need to dispense with any kind of Christian superiority complex where it's us against them. But instead what we need to embrace is that Christ saved us. And so he certainly can save them. We proclaim the kingdom in, in humility. We proclaim the kingdom in Christ through us. And any kind of uh, victory that we seem to find, we need to dispense with this whole idea that I have done this great work for God. No, no, no. God has done it through you. He has done it in spite of you. And as we, as we kind of embrace this mission statement, I want us to really live in this idea And like I said, we were very particular about this, proclaiming his kingdom, not just the gospel, which is a massive component to his kingdom. And you see that over and over and over throughout the New Testament is proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom, that that turn of phrase. The gospel is a massive component to this, but proclaiming his kingdom is far more than just evangelism. It's in the way that we talk, it's in the way that we live, it's in the way that we behave, it's in the way that we actually interact with each other, And it's a way that we view ourselves as well. And just like Paul, recognizing I'm the foremost sinner and man, Christ saved me. How, why, I don't know, nor do I care. The point is if he saved me, he can save everyone else too. And it is our responsibility to proclaim that kingdom in humility to each other and to an unsaved world. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.